Welcome to Four Questions Four, the official podcast of Osgood Hall Law School, presenting great conversations about legal education, the profession, and the law. Today, Professor Francois Tanguay Renault, Director of Osgood's Certificate in the Laws of Emergency Program, has four questions for Osgood Professor Saptarishi Bandopadhyay on the impact of disasters on the political and legal landscape, and about his recent book, All Is Well, Catastrophe and the Making of the Normal State, which was published in February 2022. Now, here's Francois Tanguay Renault. Greetings. We're living in a world today that seems increasingly shaped by crisis. Some people even refer to the era in which we live as an era of converging crises. The COVID-19 pandemic, one would say is only the beginning. We have a tragic and unexpected, some might say expected, some might say unexpected war in the heart of Europe. Uh, We have Uh, had recently civil unrest at home. And we have increasingly destructive and random disasters brought on by climate change. Now, each new crisis brings with it an infinite variety of legal and societal challenges. And the way that authorities respond to them will impact the way we live in the decades to come. My guest today, uh, Professor Sattarishi Bandopadier, looks at disasters through an unconventional legal lens in his teaching uh, at Osgood Hall Law School. Uh, He also does so in his new book, All is Well, Catastrophe and the Making of the Normal State, which was published by Oxford University Press earlier this year. Now, his work on the book uh, in uh, 2020 coincided with the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has killed Um, to be noted, more than 6 million people around the world so far. The book uh, examines the impact of three historic disasters in the 18th century, uh, the Great Plague of Marseille in 1720, the Great Lisbon Earthquake of 1755, and the Great Bengal Famine of 1717, uh, in order to offer a kind of history of the present. Welcome, Saptarishi. Uh, and thanks for for joining me today. Uh, so let's get let's get started with with question one. So tell me, why did you choose the title, just a provocative title, "All Is Well," for a book about disasters? Um, thanks, thanks for the question, and thanks for having me, Francois. Um, so. I chose all as well because that's what we think, right? That's what we have to think when this is fundamentally a book about how states, experts, international organizations, how institutions and and sort of political political authorities go about solving the problem of disasters. And I try to show that part of solving the problem of disasters involves telling people what the disaster is in the first place. And no one wants to hear that all is not well political legitimacy, institutional capacity, political authority, all of that stuff historically relies on people thinking that they are being taken care of. So even after a disaster happens, people crawl out from under the rubble. You know, they crawl out from their houses and they file lawsuits and they wave flags. And all of this stuff is part of how 
political culture through law, through insurance, through tort law, through judicial decisions, all of this stuff comes together to create a sense in society's mind that even if tomorrow a tornado shows up or a hurricane flows through here, bad things will happen, but eventually we will recover to a normal. And the point of this book is to not trust that normal. The point of this book is that your house is in rubble, you are underwater, your lawsuits are going nowhere, your insurance is not working out, because the disaster was caused by the normal that you automatically accepted. The everyday when you were told by the news media, by, politi by political rhetoric that all was well, you ignored the circumstances and the vulnerabilities which surround you and other people every day. So tomorrow when a storm comes through, it becomes something called a disaster. So one of the things that that one of the examples that came through for my students and me looking at this last year was that the problem of homelessness, people don't notice the homeless. It's just a normal part of urban living in modern society. And yet you have a particularly cold winter or you have COVID-19 and you realize that there are hundreds of thousands of people who have nowhere to go. They're left right in open spaces where they're completely vulnerable. Now, replace homeless people with average people who have homes. When COVID-19 comes ashore, everyone thinks, well, we have hospitals, we have governmental institutions, we have health insurance, we have healthcare, et cetera. And none of that matters. The reason none of that matters is that society is fundamentally not prepared for something like this. But constantly we're told that government and, and politicians and experts are doing things to prepare you. So this is a book about how preparations fail, even when we think we know what we're preparing for. And the problem I argue is not the threat, the problem is normalcy, the things that we accept, the vulnerabilities that we ignore, um, the rhetoric, the expertise that we accept uncritically. Um, and so that's essentially what this book is about. And my the book was, was designed to be written critically to sort of argue against these two forms of complacence. One is that states and disasters are somehow automatically opposed, that one is designed to thwart the other. And the other is that we believe this idea that somehow we can change the future or have a better future without reckoning with the kinds of motivations, power relations, racial, gendered, you know, political economy inequalities that structure our day-to-day -day lives. And so that's why all is well, the message being, if I could re rewrite the last chapter, the title would be How Well Is All. I just didn't think that sounded very well, but that, that's what I would write it if I could. Yeah. <laughs> but let me get this straight. Are you really saying that disasters don't stem out, that stem from nature, that they are human constructions? Clearly, someone who's facing an earthquake or a flood is, gonna, is not going to think that. Is, that. is that really the argument? Yes. So that is the argument. So and to be clear, I am not path breaking in this. I'm following a long lineage of people, geographers and sociologists, who've shown that this idea of a natural disaster is something that needs to be put out of people's minds. For the last 40 or 50 years, social scientists and natural scientists have shown that, you know, there are natural hazards. So a virus or a storm or rainfall is a natural hazard. However, the same natural hazard affects two different societies and two different cities very, very differently. And the reason for that is how development, how social vulnerability, how infrastructure is, is, exists in those two societies. So calling it natural takes political responsibility away from the people who should be responsible for this. It allows people to say, well, it was an act of God or, well, it was, uh, it was unforeseen. It wasn't unforeseen. There was nothing about COVID-19 that was actually unforeseen. And scientists have shown this again and again. So my argument is that disasters are, of course, real. When your house falls apart, that's a real tragedy that happens to you. But at the view, at the level of society, from the point of view of governance, 
it's also interpretive. People who tell you what has happened, why it's happened, who's to blame, they hold political power, legal power in society. And so understanding disasters to be natural allows all of that power to pass unseen, allows us to never have to question that power, and it allows you know, existing hierarchical power relations to continue in society for people who are at the bottom to stay at the bottom and blame nature instead of their government um, or each other for that matter. Yeah. So how does a law professor come to studying this topic, which is, as you just mentioned, so multifaceted, so interdisciplinary by, by, by nature? Well, I mean, law is uh, tragically behind all of this, which is surprising because you would think that if something, it's, it's, it's a disaster, lawyers would want to be right at the front of this. But, you know, for a number of years when I, when I worked in the field in, in the Philippines and in other parts of the world, I would keep hearing, oh, you're a lawyer here, you are here for tort or insurance. And I had no interest in either of those two things. But that's exactly how lawyers had sort of limited their role. They were seen as response personnel, people who would come and hand you a way to sue other people to get money back. But, but disasters are a problem of governance, and they're a problem of governance. How can you have lawyers who don't have anything to say about this? The, the trick here, and you're right to ask the question, the trick here is that lawyers can't talk about disasters while limiting their expertise to just doing law. Because when they just do law, they're not, they're not open to seeing how law interacts and produces social power and how that in turn creates societies where something like a disaster can happen. So law has to be understood not purely in terms of doctrine and not purely in terms of policy, but it has to be informed by social sciences. And it has to, this is something that social scientists don't understand, for instance. They think, well, we understand that it's poverty. Well, but how is poverty constructed? Poverty is legally constructed and institutionalized in society. Housing, how are roads planned? How are, you know, what are the traffic patterns? Where are, is electricity available? What kinds of people don't have access to food or housing or transportation? These kinds of regular legal constructions produce elderly people who live at home and who never looked upon, who die quietly when there's a heat, when there's a heat wave and no one knows about them. And yet all of that can be traced back to housing law and food distribution and unemployment and legal rules that have been structured 50 years before someone dies. So to look at the law in the context of disaster tells you nothing. Neither not about the law nor about the disaster. You have to look at how law constructs society because society is where disasters happen. If there's no society, there's no disaster. So law is fundamental and lawyers must have more to say about this. So that's actually very interesting because you come to this question from the perspective of a, a student of the law for many years, but also that of a historian, an anthropologist, a sociologist. Right? All of these perspectives are reflected in the book. And I have to say, uh, having had a look at the book, that it, it is simply quite a feat that to manage to am amalgamate all of these perspectives. And so that leads me to a question that you've already started to, add, to, to answer, and I'm going to call it my question two. What role, in your view, do lawyers play, or perhaps should play if they're not playing it, in times of disaster, in times of emergency? So, so in the first instance, in time, when we say in times of disaster or emergency, lawyers play an extremely important responsive and remedial role, right? So one of the things that happened in the aftermath of COVID-19 was that a number of law schools around North America, um, and I, I know this anecdotally and from looking at listservs, et cetera, started developing summer programs, et cetera, to teach lawyers how to deal with indigent clients, how to deal with people who had been, whose lives had really been thrown apart by COVID, how to allow them or help them to file suits, to make claims, et cetera. So this is a very, very important 
um, day-to-day managerial role that lawyers play to help people get their needs met. So that's absolutely fundamental. And law schools play a very, very important role in that. And which is one of the reasons why I think that no matter the course you're teaching in law school, no matter how doctrinal, no matter how bread, but bread and butter the courses are, even if you're not talking about disasters as a thing, if you're talking about labor law, you can't not talk about how labor relations are create conditions under which people can fall into desperate vulnerability and how those would be affected, how labor relations change from a pre-COVID to a during COVID to a post-COVID. So right on a very basic level, lawyers and law schools have an important role to play in terms of teaching people how to deal, how to live and survive. But lawyers also have to play a role in seeing these things coming, in looking at the society where they train students to become lawyers and where students become environmental lawyers, corporate lawyers, whatever they become, they have to be able to see how their day-to-day, how their day-to-day use of the law, how day-to-day policymaking creates conditions, puts people into holes, into corners from which they can't recover. Um, and so this is a really important thing that law schools don't do enough of, I think. So that's interesting because you've been teaching a, a seminar for, for some time now on, on law in the time of catastrophe. You also uh, participate in the certificate that I direct at the Osgood Professional Development Program on the laws of emergency. So when you say law schools don't do enough, how could they do enough? Should, for example, should we have in law schools a compulsory first-year course on law and crisis? Or how else do you think that we should uh, bring lawyers to understand the kind of different paradigm of thinking that you're advocating here? Yeah, so so one of the reasons I've been teaching this law in the time of catastrophe course for about five or five or six years now. It used to be called law politics of disaster, but one of the things that I noticed happening was that it used to be a relatively small group of students. It used to be a small reading group until COVID nineteen happened. Now, when COVID nineteen happened, my numbers shot up. The class was absolutely there was overflow. People were waitlisted. Now, I hope that this is not something that goes away. The reason for this is that. The students who come to the class are quite a self-selected group. They're people who have, who are very worldly, who have taken enough of the law to understand what they can do with it, but they also have an imagination. And COVID-19 has forced people to have an imagination about what kinds of things are possible, what kinds of ways law may not be able to understand or grapple with society if you focus on just law as law. Right. So I absolutely do think that for law schools, in the future, 1Ls and first-year students coming in should be given some kind of a primer into how the world is changing. So issues of climate change, issues of disaster, issues of public emergency, these kinds of things cannot be left to small modules in a constitutional law course or in the one-off course on, on law, politics, and disaster of the kind that I teach. I think that in general, law schools should try to become to incorporate, integrate more thinking about disasters and emergencies across all the years. And I think I would encourage faculty, no matter your course, think about how your course would change. Think about how the things, the issues that you normally talk about and teach about, how those things would be radically affected for a future student of yours who has to deal with it when a disaster happens. And try to incorporate that kind of thinking and conversation into the class, even if it's not a whole module yet. I think it pays to get students thinking about it because like I said, Students have experienced a lot in the last two years. They have, you know, they're, they're really sophisticated in their understanding of what happens to people and what COVID has, has, has created in society. And I think now is the right time to give them the research tool, the social sciences methodology, the, the critical thinking skills and the background research of which there's lots 
so they can actually take that thinking and transform how they use law using that thinking. Um, this is a really important time for that kind of a pedagogic move in law schools. And I think it would also encourage practicing lawyers, people who are in the profession right now, to also seek out continuing legal education uh, opportunities in that direction too. Oh, absolutely. I think that that I think how people do law has 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 transformed. Like, so for instance, the biggest thing about COVID nineteen was that most people had never seen or experienced anything like this, and it wasn't just about something happening far over there. The idea of a pandemic means that your law firm, wherever you're a lawyer, this can happen to you and your clients and your institutional setup. So more than ever before, this is not the kind of subject matter that was ever discussed in law schools when you were in law school, and it wasn't discussed in law schools when I was in law school, which was, let's say, not that long ago. Um, so I think it makes sense for you to be able to go back and either read or take courses or engage with people who do this kind of work to think about how you can get consulting and how you can get expertise into your firm, into your judicial practice, et cetera, to try and really build up capacity to handle the next next wave of this kind of a problem. Yeah. So 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 you've been thinking about these issues for quite some times now. So let me try to bring uh the issue home through my question three, which is to say. How has the writing of your book, how has your thinking been affected in any way uh, in terms of the manner or the way in which you see the current COVID-19 pandemic and, and what seems to be the way it's unfolding and presumably its aftermath? Yeah, so I so I was working um, on the final chapter and then doing a whole revision of the book when COVID uh, became a thing. And so a large part of the final revision of the manuscript as a whole was done during COVID, during the first year. Um, and it was, it was, it was very, it was hard to work on it during that time. It was disturbing because I come from India and I was constantly in touch with people around the world and particularly in India who were, for whom life was really hard. And there were lots of people who were suffering and Day in, day out, I'd be in touch with, you know, high school friends, friends from college, et cetera, who just I, people I know, people they know who've all passed away and passed away under quite, quite miserable and sudden circumstances. People our age just, you know, um, and so to be writing about this during that time was was difficult. And it, but it was also it, it also deepened my sort of conviction. It affirmed what I had been thinking about this because. It, it, I started to see in the newspapers this complete disconnect between how people think about states and political authorities and law and their experiences around COVID. And this shock that people felt as to how can this happen seemed completely inexplicable to me. But of course, as you said, I'd been looking at this problem for a long time. And this is not just me. People who've been studying disasters had similar reactions. What it did for many people in my position, I think, is that it really, it, it renewed my sort of it, it was energizing in, in a horrible way, if I can say, if I can say that, because it it told me how important this work is. It wasn't just a thing that I was writing, but suddenly it had become a real thing. And I I had to finish the book and I had to write it in a way that that I think would mean something to people. And I'm 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 hoping it does. It's a historical book. It's a book about law, politics, and environmental history. But I'm I'm hoping that something like COVID nineteen makes it unavoidable that you have to think about these things. And of course, at the crux of all of this, and I really talk about this more in the last two chapters of the book, I look at the 20th and 21st century, and I try to show how this long, deep history of looking at the 18th and 19th century, how that still remains very, very true for us. The things that we see happening back then, it's not like the past is the same as what's happening now, but our ideas, our arguments, 
the choices we make, the political evaluations we make, the things about the law we accept, the things about society we don't look at, these are not that different. You know, the things we worry about. So in many Western societies, for instance, there was a problem of looking at COVID-19 happening far, far away and thinking, oh, those poor people. But then worrying about refugee flows, not worrying about making sure those people have vaccines or not worrying about making sure the vaccine waiver goes through, but worrying about how those people will then move out of their countries and start invading, you know, invading and crossing borders into other countries, something we're hearing now about Ukraine as well. And of course, we've seen how people talk about Ukraine, European refugees, as opposed to other refugees. All of these conversations were happening and have been happening throughout COVID. And so when I was writing this book, it was a feeling of being overwhelmed by all this reality and then trying to write the last part, the last chapter in a way that will allow people to see how the history is very much alive today. And that's what I mean when I think about it as a history of the present. I didn't really have to stretch that far. The present sort of came up to meet the history as I was finishing the book. Um, yeah. That's, what I would that's the kind of serendipity that just makes for, you know, masterful uh, academic work. Wow. So let me ask you as a question uh, for Satarishi Bandopadhyay. Now that you've established yourself as a thought leader on what is, uh, forgive me for saying this, but the most important topic of the day and probably the most important topic for the foreseeable future, what's next in terms of your research? So, so there's, um, I mean, there's, there's so much more to be done here. There's, there's, there's two, there's two projects that I think I can, I, I can mention briefly. One is uh, that there are two book projects. One is uh, a legal and political history of environmentalism, and I'm trying to ask why is it that environmentalism is such a big, everyone loves it, everyone thinks so much about it, but it's, it really hasn't been able to challenge capitalistic ways of thinking about society. It really hasn't succeeded. It's sort of been incorporated into the way business as usual rather than being an actual challenge to it. So that's one or the other book that I'm trying to put together is a, a history of the relationship between armed conflict, disasters and climate change. And I'm trying to show how historically, and this is something that's playing out in the lives of environmental refugees today, is that we have politically and as a matter of policy chosen to not look at armed conflict and environmental disasters as the same thing and climate change is making it so we so they are the same thing they're now creating each other and multiplying there's a force multiplying effect so i'm trying to show how historically we avoided looking at this problem and the third thing i'll say and this is a brief thing that you and i have discussed doing briefly is that i think that we should that i, I and i want to think more about how law schools as a matter of pedagogy and as a matter of institutional setup should make themselves into institutions that can say something to students about this stuff, how they can teach students and tell them that this is relevant to their lives and that they as lawyers need to be specifically trained to think about these kinds of problems and how they should be taught to do that, how that can be generalized throughout the curriculum, how faculty can be encouraged to integrate and uptake this kind of knowledge. I think these are all open questions and they're things that we should do more research about and keep talking about. So, yeah. I'll add that the fact that you and I are talking about co-writing on this topic, given yeah. that I've written on emergencies and uh, legal theory for many years, and you bring in all the historical, sociological, anthropological perspective to this, is just a testament to how vibrant academic, an academic institution, uh, Osgood Hall Law School, is. It's always been, but I think this is a, yet another testament to this. No, um, I think it's I think it's fantastic, particularly because there's very few law schools, and I've done reading about. There's very few law schools in all of, in all of North America that have programs, that have courses, that have people who are doing this work. 
you know, not just as a one-off. And I think that Osgood should try to do more and more of it in a more coherent, integrated way. So it becomes part of our, so people know, if you want to think about these things, Osgood is a place to go. I'd like to see that happen. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Professor Saptarishi Bandopadia, for spending uh, this portion of your day uh, with me. And uh, I think that everything you had to say is going to interest uh, many of our uh, of our alumni and wh whatever constituency might have the, the chance to access this this podcast. So thank you, thank you very much, and see you uh, very soon in person in the corridors. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Professor. Thanks very much for having me. Bye. You're welcome. You've been listening to Four Questions Four by Osgood Hall Law School. We hope you'll join us again next time.